Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Mary Holland. Hello, Mary. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to remind everyone that the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the board, staff, underwriters, or donors of Voice of Ashon. As an organization, VOV does not take political positions. We do support our show hosts and their guests in expressing their views as long as they're not obscene or hate-mongering. Thank you for listening. And this is Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, recorded in the studios of Voice of Ashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. Saturdays and 3 p.m. Tuesdays on 101.9 FM KVSH. You can learn more about the show at my website, marchtwisdale.com. So now we're going to get started. Mary, how about you tell our audience a little bit about who you are? Sure. So I live in New York City. Um, I teach at NYU Law School. I teach foreign-trained lawyers the basics of the U.S. legal system and how to do research, writing, and analysis in, on American law. But my research interests are vaccine law and policy, and I've co-edited and authored a book called Vaccine Epidemic. And I was recently out in uh, the Seattle area, and that's how we met. It was a conference related to vaccines and informed consent and similar issues. One of the things that I find interesting when we are talking about the issue of vaccine medicine, uh, because it is an area of medicine, and it definitely has all of the complexity of other areas of medicine, is that a lot of times people sort of think about just doctors. But you, of course, bring to the conversation this whole other side, and that has to do with human rights and the legal aspect of how we approach many issues, including this one. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of a sense of what it is that the average American might be forgetting or missing or unaware of when it comes to where our human rights originate from? Sure. Um, human rights is a term that generally means what people's rights are the way in which people generally have to enforce them is against a government, right? So it's not going to generally deal with a contract right or a civil wrong between you and another citizen. But your right to freedom of expression, your right to freedom of assembly, your right to a fair trial, your right not to incriminate yourself, all of those are things that the government has an obligation to protect. And coming out of World War II, when gross human rights violations in Europe um, led to, you know, a horrific war and horrific war crimes and atrocities, there was a global consensus. Uh, we, we've got to make sure we don't end up in this place again. We, we really don't have, especially after nuclear weapons were used and available, there was a recognition globally that we have to prevent conflicts of this kind again. And so the United Nations was formed, and in the UN Charter, it talks about human rights and that there have to be ways in which to protect human rights. And then governments came together and they signed something called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt was very instrumental in, as an architect, and that covered civil and political rights, the things I mentioned before, but also economic and social rights, like the right to housing, the right to food, the right to medical care, the right to um, an education. Uh, but unfortunately, because there was at the time in the early 50s and 60s, the divide of the Cold War, mm -hmm. um, sort of Western countries like the United States signed up for civil and political rights, but they would not sign up for economic 
social rights in the Soviet Union oh. and the, that, the Eastern Bloc signed up for economic and social rights, but they wouldn't sign up for civil and political rights. Oh, my um, goodness. But the world has kind of moved on, and in general, there's recognitions that these, there are certain fundamental human rights, and most countries try to implement them in their own governments, but there's a recognition that governments don't always do the right thing. We, we know that. Mm-hmm. And so there are now international tribunals, and there are international courts, and there are international standards. And so I came to the issues around vaccines um, in part from having studied international human rights. And in that particular area, there was also really some important lessons coming out of World War II, and that was that Nazi doctors had done scientific, quote-unquote, scientific experiments on human subjects. Um, mm-hmm. And they were, they were atrocities, right? right? So they were, you know, Mengele studied twins, and, and there was a lot of experimentation on humans. And so coming out of World War II, there was this recognition that it is never acceptable in the interests of science or society to do experiments on human subjects ever without their free consent. But then that's actually over the last 70 years, that concept has evolved to recognize that it's not always clear what is an experiment and what is treatment. And so the UN in the 2000s adopted something called the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights. So the idea was to do the same basic kind of declaration that had been made about human rights in general. That declaration says that the interests of science and society never trump whether uh, it comes to treatment or experimentation and that there must, barring an extreme emergency, there must always be prior free and informed consent for every medical intervention. So um, what exactly was that called again? It's called the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights. It was done under UNESCO, which is for Education and Social Welfare of the UN, and 193 countries, including the United States, signed it. Was it like sort of a codification or expansion of informed consent? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not only that, but it's, it's dealing with the many issues that come up around human rights and biological and medical interventions. Right. It's not binding, it's not a treaty, but mm-hmm. it was meant to be kind of a new floor, right? And it right. was meant to have this broader um, understanding of informed consent. Do you want to go ahead and, and give our audience um, your definition of it? Informed consent really means that when it comes to a medical intervention, it means that you have to receive information about the risks and benefits of the procedure or the experiment, and you have to be able to say no. And you have to be able to say no even if your doctor or mainstream science disapproves of your choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so prior, free, and informed consent is the ethical global standard. Tell me if this understanding is correct. Um, so informed um, means that you are informed of the pros and cons of following the doctor's advice and potential pros and cons of not following the doctor's advice, as well as potentially alternatives if they exist. So imagine you have cancer, breast cancer. Um, who listening right now would be happy if they walked in to see their doctor and they said, well, I've decided we're going to do radiology for you. And you said, okay, are there some other options? And the doctor said, well, yeah, but I don't like them. So you're going to do this. How many adult women in their fifties would say, sure, no problem. I'll just sort of do whatever you tell me to. 
I need no further information. Right. It's a good example, March. I think most people in that situation who have the opportunity um, will not only ask the doctor, well, what are my alternatives? Could I do something, you know, without radiation? Could I do something that's uh, less invasive? But ordinarily, somebody who has the, you know, wherewithal to do it will seek a second opinion, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this notion about vaccines that's quite different. Exactly. What I would like to sort of move sideways into a little bit is we want to trust our elected officials or we want to hate them, right? <laughs> We're Americans. We either hate you or we love you. And there's this assumption that legislators, when they're out there and they're passing legislation, that at the very least, even if we disagree with it, there must be people in the system who have vetted legislation to confirm that it's actually legal. As I've spent more and more years going down to Olympia and tracking the you know, the the details of legislation and whatnot around the country, I'm finding it very interesting. There's a lot of illegal legislation that gets passed. And I would not, as a common American, have thought it was possible. I would have thought there was some legal team that's supposed to sit there and and say, yeah, you're fine. No one's going to take this to court. It's not going to get overturned in court. But now it seems like that the system either is breaking down or that that was just a myth in my head. So what do you know about how that goes? Well, you're right that when legislators at the state level or in Congress at the federal level, when they are working on draft legislation, it's incumbent on them to make sure that that draft legislation is going to be a part of the fabric of the law, and it's going to respect precedents, and it's going to respect other legislation, right? It's going to fit, basically. And there are, in all of those legislatures, there are professional drafters of legislation, and it's part of their function to make sure that whatever the new law is fits and it doesn't violate other provisions. But I think it would be wrong to suggest that we've never encountered laws that violate the Constitution or that violate other laws. And so our case books of, of, you know, of cases that students, law students study, it's full of things where, you know, the question is, does the state law violate the Constitution or does this state law violate an international treaty that the U.S. is a party to or does one state law violate another state law? So that happens fairly often. I think the most recent example we've seen of this isn't from the legislature in, in terms of the whole country, but we've seen the current administration proposed several new immigration regulations, and courts now on twice have found the first draft unconstitutional and then have found the second draft unconstitutional, and mm-hmm. there's promises to go forward in court. But it's important to recognize that while it may be possible to bring an action against uh, an unconstitutional law or a law that is in conflict with some other law to clarify things, it's difficult to bring litigation. It's expensive. It takes somebody a lot of time and a lot of research and effort. And so it's not something that's simple to do. It's possible, but it's not simple. So it is entirely possible that legislation across the country that is in conflict with the fabric of the law gets passed. And unless there is an advocacy group that has the wherewithal and the motivation and the ability to 
push it into the court system, it will just sit there on the books and affect the people in that state until eventually it gets challenged. Yes, um, if it's enforced, March. So, for instance, I'm just coming to my head, you know, um, it was in 2000-something was the case uh, in Texas about sodomy. So, you know, it was a law that was almost never enforced, but it was then selectively enforced against a, a gay couple. And then that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. The ACLU was representing the people, and the sodomy law was struck down. But oh. the problem with bad laws, and there's lots of bad laws, right. is either they're harming people because they are enforced, or they're not enforced, and then they can be enforced selectively. So it's it's a real problem. There's there's lots of laws on the books that might shock you. Right. <laughs> there's a lot of laws on the books that are pretty bad that don't really relate to modern life. Uh, and they may never be taken off the books unless somebody mounts a challenge. So let's see, you spent uh, roughly around three years in Russia? I lived there um, early on in my legal career. I was working for an American law firm that had an office there. But before that, I had lived in the Soviet Union and spent a year in a Soviet elementary school as a kid. And then I had gone back in college for a semester and had then worked there a lot while I was working for an international human rights organization. I guess where I was going with that is I'm curious. I mean, you know, some people go to law school and they want to go defend people who have been in auto accidents. And, you know, everyone has to choose environmental law, right? Everyone has to choose what they want to do. What was it in your life experience or what was it about the subject of human rights that, that drew you in that direction? I'm just curious. Well, um, my experience living in the Soviet Union had a really profound effect on my interest in human rights. So when I I first did a, a graduate degree studying the Soviet Union and Soviet foreign policy, and then I really gravitated more towards law, and so my focus in law school was studying Soviet law, and then that led me to work in an international human rights organization to work on human rights issues in the Soviet Union and as the Soviet Union was collapsing and becoming Russia and many other states in that sphere. And so I was working in the early 90s um, with human rights activists and with legislators in primarily in Russia, but I visited and worked in Latvia and Estonia and Uzbekistan and the Czech Republic and uh, Romania and Hungary. And I really got a feel for countries coming out of um, so-called socialist regimes, but in most respects, very autocratic regimes, uh, autocratic countries. Right. So it really informed my um, my view that people have to have, I mean, as our Bill of Rights created, you have to have basic rights that are guaranteed, and you have to clearly have those rights against any government actors. It's mm -hmm. critical. And so, you know, not only do I think that's critical in the civic and political sphere, but I think it's really critical in the medical sphere. And in right. essence, vaccination are, you know, in the U.S. context, it's government mandates. Right. And so we see that we have certain rights, you know, to be free of surveillance and certain rights to be able to express our opinion. And they're not always perfectly enforced. We have certain rights not to testify against ourselves. We have certain rights that there has to be a warrant if somebody's going to come and search our homes. 
Right. But oddly enough, when it comes to our physical integrity, you know, you can opt not to have your children vaccinated now, for instance, in California or West Virginia or Mississippi, but your kids can't go to public school. You still have to pay taxes, but your kids can't obtain a public education if they're not willing to accept this very significant medical intervention unless they can get a medical exemption, which in essence is exceptionally difficult to access. Well, and the interesting thing with the law in California is I believe it also restricts you from any group activities like you cannot attend private schools and daycares. It applies to private schools. There are slight carve-outs, March. There Mm -hmm. is a charter school carve-out and in essence people could go and there's sort of homeschooling carve outs to have right. smaller, you know, just have some class activities. But yeah. it's very restrictive. It's very in my opinion, it's extremely wrong headed and will come back to bite those who proposed it. So so I want to explain why school is related to informed consent for um, our listeners who may not see that there's a relationship. If when you walk into the doctor's office, whatever's going on, not only do they need to give you information, but you need to be free to say yes or no without any coercion. So that's what the consent piece is about, right? Um, If you walk into... Uh, the doctor's office, and you've always wanted to homeschool your kids, and that's and you would never put them into public school, and your goal is to homeschool, then you may not feel any coercion when the doctor says, okay, that's fine, you don't have to do this, but you realize that you won't be able to attend the local public school, because you'll say, that's all right, I don't care, I didn't want to go anyways. But if you are like most of us who need and are depending upon publicly funded education, I mean, like, talk about a fundamental pillar of American society is every child has the right to a publicly funded education. And so you walk in, mom and dad have to work, kids have to go to school, that's what you're doing. And then they say, well, you can say no, but your kid won't be able to access publicly funded education. Now you are under threat of your child being uneducated. You're um, potentially under threat that if you leave your kid home alone while you both go to work, CPS is going to be called on you. I mean, basically, you're under threat. So the consent piece of informed consent is gone in the entire state because that law was written. Correct. Now, things are changing. There's so much more science coming out right now and new studies. People all over the nation are organizing and coming together. But I'm just curious, like, how is it for the past 30, 40 years that informed consent has been impinged upon in so many states, and it hasn't ended up in court. Well, that's inaccurate, March. It has been in court. Okay, um, it got has it. been in court a lot. So as we said earlier, there is this sort of conflict between these two legal paradigms. There's the legal paradigm internationally, but also in U.S. law since the 1920s, of a right to prior free and informed consent. Mm-hmm. And then there's this paradigm of um, the state having a police power to be able to impose vaccination on the population mm-hmm. um, to prevent disease. And it started from a Supreme Court case, well, it, was, it predated it, but the landmark case is a 1905 case where there was a smallpox outbreak. And so Cambridge decided to impose a mandate, not on children, but on the adult population 
to get a vaccine. And if somebody objected, they would have to pay a fine, which in today's dollars would be a $125 fine. That precedent, in my view, has been misinterpreted and grossly overinterpreted mm. to mean that virtually any preventive mandate is upheld. So, as you know, the schedule now for children is 70 doses of 16 vaccines, including, you know, flu shots and hepatitis B and human papillomavirus. Um, these are not readily contagious, well, hepatitis B and, and uh, HPV. These are only transmissible through intimate contact. So it's just been wildly stretched. It's been like an elastic decision. And for sure, these are conflicting paradigms. And eventually, March, I'm confident that a case will go to the Supreme Court to, to sort of hammer out the distinction between the informed consent doctrine and the police power to mm -hmm. impose a mandate. But um, over the last 10 years, when I've been deeply involved, the Supreme Court has declined several opportunities uh -huh. to look at religious exemptions to vaccination and look at other conflicts between mandates and the rights to opt out. Right. But for sure, ultimately, there's these two conflicting lines of cases of sort of in, in, uh, autonomy on the one hand, not only in terms of bodily integrity, but the right to die, the right to refuse unwanted medical treatment, the right to sexual activity with the partner of your choice, the right to be free from forced sterilization. There's mm -hmm. that line of cases. And then there's this other line of cases that says, well, if the state government thinks that there's this infectious disease threat or there's this other health threat that they can prevent through imposing what they imagine, is a safe and effective remedy on everybody, mm -hmm. they have the right to do that. And they have the right to quarantine people. So states have expansive police powers. I believe that the science for mass vaccination no longer justifies what arguably was justifiable in 1905. What they were holding over people's heads in 1905 wasn't an education, a right. public education. They were holding over their head a misdemeanor and a small fine, and plenty of people took that option. That's exactly what sort of stood out to me, was even then when they were facing a disease that literally would kill 30% of the people who caught it, you know, this is a pretty big deal compared to chicken yeah, pox. It's, it's, there's no comparison to chicken pox. Right. There's no right. comparison to mumps, right? So I think that, you know, ultimately the paradigm today, both legally and scientifically, is eroding and it will change. But right. in, in the meantime, from my perspective, a lot of children are being injured. Really a lot of, I mean, right. I have a child who's vaccine injured. If you look at the special needs population, and if you even look at government statistics, you know, the government is saying one in six kids has some kind of behavioral or learning disability. That's crazy. When I was growing up, that, that wasn't the case. You know, now it's one in nine kids or one in ten kids has asthma. When I went to school, you know, a school of 200 kids, there was one child with asthma. So right. something's changed in the environment, and I unfortunately think overall we're afraid to look at the question of vaccines because the government's been recommending it, because doctors have been recommending it, because there's a lot of vested financial interest in this. There's liability protection, and, you know, we can talk more about any of those pieces. But unfortunately, I think there's this remarkable unwillingness to look at an obvious 
potential causative agent for why so many children have some kind of chronic issue today, health issue. Right. You know, I'm going to stop real quick for a station identification. I'd like to remind everyone that they are listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon. My name is March Twisdale, and I'm talking today with Mary Holland, who is, well, she's got an amazing life. She's a fabulous human rights lawyer, international, and you'll learn more as you listen for the rest of the show. Before we return to the interview, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors who allow Voice of Ashon to exist. VOV support is provided by Puget Sound Energy's Energy Efficiency Heating Weatherization Program. PSE can help you use less energy and save money. Find out how efficient upgrades to insulation, heating equipment, water heaters, and windows will keep you and your home warmer and your bills lower. You can go to psc.com slash rebates. Also, KVSH programming support is provided by our community credit union, personal, professional, and full-service, member-focused and community-based, conveniently located across from Thriftway at ourcu.com. Okie doke. So, Mary, um, what, I, what I'm really looking forward to doing with you, and we will touch upon the book now, is um, actually going through all of these, um, these different venues of approaching human rights law internationally, historically, in the state and whatnot, because that is such a unique view that you can bring to this issue. When you were at the conference that I attended back in March, you were talking about the difference between recommendations and how many countries with really good health outcomes use and depend upon recommendations versus um, mandates. So do you want to explain a little yes. bit about that? Yes, I have just pulled up my chart so that I can give you accurate information. So <laughs> most peer-developed countries do not have mandates. They do not tie education to vaccination status. And at least de jure, on the books, legally, people have the right to refuse. Now, it doesn't mean, March in practice that doctors don't bully patients and parents into vaccinating their children. They may well. But um, as a matter of law, in Australia, Austria, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Iceland, Ireland, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Spain, and Sweden and the United Kingdom, childhood vaccines are recommended. They are not mandated. And even in those countries, there are a couple that mandate them. In Italy, there are four mandatory vaccines. In France, there are three mandatory vaccines. In the U.S., we have up to 14 mandatory vaccines or that you have to assert in the states where they're available religious exemptions. And we can come back to that if you want. Most of these countries I mentioned, there are many fewer vaccines that are either recommended or mandated. So in the United States, we have 16 federally recommended vaccines. In Iceland, for example, you mentioned you had a recent guest, there are 11 um, recommended vaccines. In Denmark, there are 10 recommended vaccines. In Norway, there are 11 recommended vaccines. In Sweden, there are 10. Now, 
healthcare is global. Um, the pharmaceutical industry is global. So I think there's a lot of pressure on doctors globally to add vaccines to the recommendations and to the schedules for children. But it's notable that the United States is much more aggressive in its vaccine schedule, in the number of vaccines and also in the schedule. So you may know that in the United States, infants are recommended to get a birth dose of a hepatitis B vaccine. When I've read something or I'm referencing something, it usually comes either directly from the vaccine makers themselves or the CDC or the NIH or the FDA. I basically make sure to source information from those sources that people tend to trust the most. And that's what's so fascinating about the subject is that it's not as if the evidence isn't just right there sort of in front of you. It's just that the media ignores it. The national narrative that has been very, very carefully not only created, but inundated into society is actually very different from what you'll see on, for example, the homepage for Gardasil. One of the interesting things about Gardasil, if you just go to the home site, Merck website, Gardasil, right there, there's immediately in front of you, you don't have to look for it. It's like right there in front of your nose in the middle of the screen. And it says, if you have such and such a situation, you should not use this vaccine. And I think there's a couple of pieces there. But one of them is if you are allergic to yeast, right? You know, yeast that's in bread, right? And what's really interesting about that for me is that in my 30s, I became really sick at a certain point. I wasn't quite sure what was going on. It was it was like it would come and go throughout the day. And I went in and I did allergy testing to figure out what it was. And I grew up with a father who baked homemade bread my whole life. We never bought a loaf at the store. Yeast is something I've been around forever. And my results came back that I was on the edge of anaphylactic reactive to yeast. So I took all products that had yeast out of my diet, and 100% of my symptoms went away. Three years later, I was fine. And since then, I have been able to eat yeast. So in my own personal life experience, I've gone through this period of time where I went from eating bread all the time, yeast not a problem, suddenly I had a severe allergy for a few years, and then it went away. So when we take our you know young teens into the doctor and they know that yeast is a strong, strong, strong contraindication to getting this vaccine. They don't ask the parents or these teenagers, hey, by the way, are you allergic to yeast? And we have so many um, people who are like gluten intolerant and other things right now. I mean, allergies are exploding, but they don't ask the question. I find that failure to use available medical skills, which is to test for allergies in order to ensure that a person can safely receive treatment, I find that disturbing. I, I agree, March. It's very disturbing. But it's not even just the allergy to the yeast or other components in the vaccine. Aluminum is in that vaccine. There are some people with an aluminum allergy. The other issue that's even more serious, in my view, is that in the original clinical trial data that Merck gave to the FDA, it shows that if a woman already has an HPV infection at the time of the vaccination, she has what they characterized in Merck's documents as a quote-unquote negative risk. But they didn't really look into that 
further. And there are many reported cases in the adverse event reporting system of people who got the Gardasil vaccine or got an, um, the other HPV, other HPV vaccines, and um, then they developed lesions, cervical lesions, or they developed cervical cancer, or they had other serious fertility problems. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to see that they are not related to the administration of the vaccine. So there's no testing to find out if you have an allergy. A good doctor will ask about that. But mm -hmm. as you point out, you didn't even know you were allergic to yeast. Right. But the other issue is there's no testing to see if somebody's already come into contact with the human papillomaviruses that the vaccine is against. And it may literally trigger those viruses if, in fact, the person's affected at that Time. So and I'm pretty um, sure the vaccine industry actually, the, the makers of these of these two vaccines actually do say it's a contraindication. Oh, they, they do say what the contra, well, they, they do say the contraindications on the product insert, but you right. know, they are, doctors are not required to give people product inserts. Right, Most right, right, people right. don't read them. Most people don't do the level of research that they do on buying a car or a cell right. phone to get a vaccine. And that's a problem. I mean, I would advise anybody who's listening, do your homework. Read the product insert. Mm -hmm. Assume that this research is far more important than any other consumer product you're going to research because literally vaccines, nobody disputes the facts that taking a vaccine can be a life or death decision. Everybody's different. There's bio-individuality. One person is going to react a different way from another. The Gardasil vaccine in particular, two cases have already been settled from the Federal Vaccine Injury Compensation Program for young people's deaths, one boy and one girl. You mentioned earlier, for example, how many vaccines are on the current recommended schedule, which can only be called a recommended schedule if you're lucky enough to live in a state like Washington, where you still have really a free choice. Some of the states, in particular, like Mississippi, I think they even got, they're the one state that got rid of even the religious exemption or the medical. So every state, in theory, has a medical exemption. So in theory, if you can get a doctor okay. to give you, but it's very difficult to access. There are three okay. states yeah. that have um, no other exemptions other than medical. That's now Mississippi, West Virginia, and California. Mississippi did get rid of a religious exemption about 25 years ago. Right, right, right. Um, the other states have, 47 states have religious exemptions, and I think now 18 states have philosophical uh, exemptions. You can just say, I don't right. want to get it. But um, And it's a little inaccurate. So the federal government, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, they're recommending 70 doses of 16 vaccines. Mm -hmm. But most schools don't require quite that many. Most right. schools don't require, you know, that you get an annual flu shot. But the federal government is recommending that. Right, right. So when I talk to people who are over the age of 50, they've already raised their kids, their kids are in college, and they really usually tend to just not quite understand why this is an issue. And then I'll say to them, okay, well, you know, your kids were born before 1987, um, which is when the decision was made to give immunity to vaccine makers so the statute is, is a couple of things. The statute is 1986, and it's called the okay. National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And the reasoning in the statute, which you can find on Google, um, the reasoning was that the Congress and the doctors and the industry said that vaccines were so life-saving and that the injuries were so very, very rare. 
Um, and that unfortunately led to, I think, a much more reckless um, set of behaviors on the part of industry and doctors, um, a failure to really be careful, as I think they would have been had they continued to be liable. Mm-hmm. In 2011, a case reached, uh, 2010 it was heard, but in 2011 there was a decision um, called Brusewitz versus Wyeth, and that decision related to whether or not it was still possible after after cases had first gone to this vaccine injury compensation program, whether they could then sue in a regular court the manufacturers for a design defect. And so the case was technically about whether or not it was a design defect on the part of Wyeth that they had a whole cell pertussis vaccine. So the DPT vaccine had a lot of injuries associated with it. And in mm-hmm. fact, in the United States, about 10 years after Japan, we switched from the whole cell pertussis vaccine to an acellular pertussis vaccine, which had mm-hmm. many fewer injuries associated with it. And so the case brought by the Brusewitz, Hannah Brusewitz, and in our book, Vaccine Epidemic, we have a chapter by her father, which is a fascinating chapter. She developed seizures within within minutes of getting her DPT shot and, you know, suffered terrible seizure injuries and cognitive um, difficulties and a whole panoply of disabilities that are lifetime disabilities. Right. And the family lost in the vaccine injury compensation program, although, in my view, the evidence of her disability being related to vaccines is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt in my mind that had that case gone before a jury, they would have found in favor of Hannah. Right. But the the court decided that juries were not competent to decide questions of design defect. And so, in essence, those decisions are now exclusively in the purview of the FDA. Um, and what that case was really about, Marsh, was not the DPT design, because only the acellular vaccine has been in use in the United States now for decades. Mm-hmm. What that case was really about was cases of vaccines containing thimerosal, a mercury-containing mm-hmm. preservative, which was being used in many non in, in many of the attenuated vaccines, so the DPT and in hepatitis B and in Haemophilus B, it was being used pervasively um, since like the 80s, but then as the schedule increased in the early 90s, infants were getting walloping doses of mm-hmm. mercury in their infant vaccines. And the Brusewitz decision made it impossible for 5,000 families that w- had lost in the vaccine injury compensation program, it made it impossible for them to go forward in a regular court and to get right. real discovery. One of the biggest issues of the distinction between this compensation program and the kinds of rights one has in a court is that in a court, in a civil action, one can gain information. One can say to the other side, you have to answer these questions. We have to be able to depose you, basically put you on the stand outside of the courtroom to get information, and we can ask you for documents, emails, Mm -hmm. reports, letters, all kinds of documentation, scientific experiment data, and that's not available as of right in the compensation program. So we're really, in a legal way, we are really hamstrung when it comes to drugs 
drugs. Think about all the drugs that have been pulled from the market because of litigation, because lawyers basically put the manufacturers on the spot and said, show us what you know. And often the manufacturers fold. The prime example in my head is Vioxx for Merck. Merck didn't go to the end of the litigation. They settled because there was pretty strong evidence that they had been aware of risks and had not fully disclosed them to the public. In the area around childhood vaccines, because of this 86 Act that you mentioned, it's really not feasible to sue the manufacturers directly uh, in the first instance. And again, you can, in theory, you can sue after losing or even after winning and declining the judgment from the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. But having an individual go up against the pharmaceutical industry when this statute has insulated them so greatly, it's daunting. It's daunting. It's starting to happen, actually, mm-hmm. but it's daunting. So basically what you're saying is that not only do they have immunity from simply being sued, but they have also, therefore, all of the ways in which information can be teased out during a lawsuit, that also is being basically protected. What's really interesting, a lot of people don't understand that when a pharmaceutical company goes to the FDA and says, I want you to approve this, or, you know, they're asking the regulatory agency at the CDC to, you know, give approval for something. They have their own scientists and they can say, okay, go out and do as many studies as you need until you come up with at least three or four that make this drug look like it does what we want it to do and like it's safe. And so um, when a group of scientists conduct a study for Merck or one of the other companies and they don't like the results, there's no law requiring them to actually publish that. I'm aware of situations where they might throw out the results of 10, 15 um, studies that don't favor them and they keep the three or four along the way that do make them look good. And then they show up at the FDA, yay. So what we have to understand is as human beings, as Americans in this country living under the system, is that they are intentionally doing that. They have gobs and gobs of studies that made their product look unfavorable. They simply threw those away. They ignored them. They got to enough studies that made their product look good. They go to the regulatory agency, which half the time, no matter who's in the White House, is led by people who are industry insiders who cannot, you know, we've got lots of foxes guarding the chicken coop. And then when that drug is approved and released to the public, the regulatory agencies, the scientific community, everyone views that as the final experiment. That's like openly understood as now it's essentially a public trial. And that's why they require by law that all adverse reactions have to be reported by medical professionals because we are essentially the last test. Well, you're certainly right that, you know, they don't, they, they don't have to disclose all the information. They have to disclose the information that's required, and they often will not disclose information that was unfavorable. That's for sure. Um, and, you know, doctors aren't required to report adverse events. 
I thought doctors and nurses were required to report to the vaccine adverse reaction. They're not. I mean, they, well, they, technically they are, March, but there's no penalty if they don't. They oh. often don't recognize what a vaccine injury is. So right. if a child has a seizure or if a child becomes sort of disconnected and it has an encephalopathy episode, they often don't recognize that. Yes, the statute requires them to report, but it's the rare case, I think, that is reported, you can't assume that all of the data in that reporting system is accurate, or you certainly can't assume that it's complete data. Right, right, right. And as you said, the FDA themselves have basically stated that less than, they guarantee that less than 10% of adverse reactions are reported, which means you can take the amount of reported problems and sort of extrapolate out and realize that there's a lot of people who are being injured who are not um, receiving proper care for those injuries. Exactly. So your book is titled Vaccine Epidemic. And some people, I mean, the this issue has been intentionally polarized and politicized. And I mean, you know, I have personally been called a baby killer and all sorts of nasty names when I talk simply about the importance of informed consent. It's really, really interesting how emotional people in America have, I believe, allowed themselves to become about this issue. So what was the reason why you decided to write this book? Um, the, my co-authors and editors, Louise Habakis and Kim McLosenberg and Ginger Taylor, we were all involved um, in 2010 in Chicago in putting together a really interesting and impressive demonstration rally, and we invited lots of speakers to come and give brief speeches about different perspectives on the vaccine issue. And after we had done that, we realized that it was just an incredible um, compilation of different perspectives on vaccines. And so we said, let's turn that into a book. And we got a publisher, and we've already gone through two editions. And um, so we really wanted to show that it's a much more complicated issue than the one that's generally represented in the press, that, you know, all vaccines are good and anybody who questions them is is a flat earther and doesn't believe in climate change. I mean, right. That's sort of standard narrative. Um, we wanted to show that it's so much more complex than that. And right. so we have perspectives in the book from scientists, from doctors, um, from ethicists, from um, philosophers, from lawyers, uh, from religious perspectives, um, a whole from a lot of perspectives from parents, uh, and then looking at sort of specific hot topics like um, sort of the the financial incentives for the pharmaceutical industry, looking mm -hmm. at the HPV vaccine in particular, looking at the role of media, looking at the issue of mercury, looking at flu vaccines in particular for healthcare workers. We sort of looked at the really super hot topics. And um, I think, you know, I, I'm still very proud of the book. It, there's some photographs uh, that gives you, shows people the, the recommended schedule from the federal government. Mm -hmm. There's a, a photograph from um, the Texas, Department of Health showing how you can vaccinate a baby in like seven different places at once. Um, there's graphs about how really um, deaths from infectious diseases had already gone down to really minimal levels long before vaccines were ever introduced. 
there's photographs of rallies that have, and demonstrations that have already taken place um, about vaccine mandates. And there's, um, it's, it's exhaustively documented. There's, we included some abstracts of scientific studies that show that there are real issues around vaccines. So my recommendation to anybody is do your own homework. Don't, unfortunately, I wish I could say just listen to your doctor and do whatever your doctor says, but I think you'd be ill-advised to do that. I think it's really important in today's world that you do your own homework. Absolutely. And on so many topics. That's the important thing to remember is this is not the only complex topic out there. Wow, we are living in an incredibly complex world. And a lot of people get, I think, information overload. And so it becomes sort of desirable to say, I'm going to delegate to those people over there who have made this or that area of study their life's work, and I'm going to trust that they know way more than I do. So I'm going to delegate to them and then say, basically, I trust you to come up with an answer that I'm going to maybe abide by or base my reactions upon. And that makes so much sense in the world. I don't want to know about plumbing. If I got a problem with my plumbing, I'm not going to go Google it. I'm going to call someone who's an expert and say, here, here's my money. I'm going for a walk. I don't even want to hear about it. You know, just please fix the problem. So delegating to experts is brilliant. However, the one thing to keep in mind when it comes to medical care is that we go home with our bodies and our children after the decision is made. And that we are going to live with the consequences of that decision, not the medical doctor and not the nurse and not the person who advised us on what we should do. So in a way, it's like, you know, someone cracks my plumbing because they're a lousy plumber. I can go hire another plumber to come fix the plumbing because it's the plumbing in the house that got broken. But if it's you or your child that gets damaged or broken, usually from these types of injuries, many of which are neurological, there's not a fix. Now, I'm a parent who's vaccinated both of her children. We did delayed vaccines, and we didn't use all the vaccines. I sort of mimicked what my parents did for me back in the 70s. So I kept the load on my child's body low, and I waited until they were older and their immune systems were fully developed. That worked for my family, but I would never tell a parent that they shouldn't or should vaccinate according to any other type of um, schedule because there should be as many right answers to the question as there are people in the world. So what concerns me, and that's where it comes back to human rights, is that we're getting to a point where the subject is taboo and people are not engaging in respectful conversation, there's a lot of hate mongering and a lot of polarization. And that really concerns me. Yeah, I, I think it's very disappointing. And, and I think um, there's a lot of um, bull and uh, kind of institutions responsible for trying to make this a kind of fundamentalist dialogue. You know, you're either pro or you're anti or you're, you're good or you're bad. And just like in religion, I mean, that's just so ridiculous. You know, it's so much more complicated than, you know, it's not a binary issue. Right. You know, I think aspirin is great, but I would never say every single person on the planet at a specific age, regardless of weight, 
regardless of allergies, regardless of anything, should get a particular dose of aspirin. It's it's nutty. I mean, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, and we realize that with every other medicine, and yet we have this, in my view, kind of archaic view that it's safe and effective to be giving every child the day they're out of the womb, when you know nothing about their biology, it's safe and effective is the view to give them this very serious medical intervention. I, yeah. To me, it's, it doesn't make sense. Most adults, if they go in and get their flu vaccine, they get one vaccine, or you get your tetanus booster because you stepped on a nail. You know, it's one vaccine and your arm's going to hurt. Well, imagine, you know, if you got eight vaccines, two in your left leg, two in your right leg, two in your right arm, two in your left arm. How many adults would be really thrilled about the idea of getting eight vaccines, even though they weigh 150 pounds and they have a fully developed immune system, and going home and having to deal with the feelings of that? But that's pretty much what we do to, like, 15-pound babies, if I understand correctly. Yeah, I'm looking at the federally recommended schedule right now, and for a two-month-old, um, there are six recommended vaccines at the two-month visit, and one of those, the DTAP, is, you know, three vaccines. The pneumococcal right. is, I forget how many strains, but it's something like 18 strains. So it's it's really, it's an extremely... Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a big <laughs> road. And yeah. um, although even a doctor from the CDC testifying before Congress on the last hearing we had about vaccines, she acknowledged that there has never been a vaccinated, unvaccinated government-sponsored study. Right. There has never been something that shows us that children who follow this schedule as compared to children who are not vaccinated, that the children who follow the vaccination schedule are healthier. Um, right. On the contrary, we just don't have that data that shows there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there have been sort of selected studies that seem to indicate that people who have not been vaccinated so much are actually healthier and they're less likely to have autoimmune disorders right. and other neurological issues, but there haven't been as comprehensive studies of that yet as there should be. And what we do know without a doubt in every single, talk about every single scientist would agree with this literally, is that when you add up the, is it ethyl mercury or methyl mercury? Which, which one is it? This ethyl is, is in thimerosal. Okay. That when you take the amount of mercury that our own government says is safe for a child of this, you know, weight to have in their system at one time, and then you add up everything that's present per microgram or whatever in the vaccines on the schedule, it far exceeds what the government says is safe. True. That was the case, Marge, um, when ethyl mercury and thimerosal was pervasive in in most of the childhood vaccines. That's no longer the case. It's mm-hmm. now being used not as a preservative, but only as a bacteria. You know, only sort of in the manufacturing process. The load on mercury is less, but the load now for aluminum is much greater. And the the amounts oh. on in of which children, infants, and children are getting aluminum now exceed what are known to be the safe level set by the EPA. So it's the same okay. issue, but actually mercury now is less of an issue than it was in the 90s and the early 2000s. Right. It still seems to me that the CDC recommended schedule should be required to abide by the um, the uh, 
the understanding of how much, you know, like, shouldn't there, I don't understand why the schedule doesn't. You couldn't pass a fourth grade science test if you didn't have a control and then you had your experimental side. It's shocking to me that this schedule has never been tested in a vaccinated, unvaccinated study. It's shocking. It's appalling, really. I mean, some people would say that it suggests the vaccine schedule is in and of itself an experiment, and it's it's hard to disagree with that view because it's really mm-hmm. never been subjected to a controlled experiment. You you don't right. give some people any vaccines. You give some people a, a much lesser schedule, and then you give some people the full recommended schedule now. And you know, there's been congressional draft legislation to do that now for many years. Why that hasn't been done, you know, you have to ask yourself, why are they unwilling to do this fundamental study? Why? It doesn't make sense scientifically. Well, the big question I'm curious about is, given how many people have been concerned about this for so long and what $3.5 billion has been paid out to families of um, injured or killed people um, by the National Vaccine um, Injury Compensation Program. So, I mean, billions of dollars. So we know there's a there's a risk there. What I don't understand is why a nonprofit or why simply the scientific community has said, we don't care about government funding, forget it. We're going to go ahead and go over here and we're going to, so, you know, so conduct this ourselves. So that has been done, March, and there's efforts to publish one study I'm aware of in the United States, and I believe other uh-huh. countries are doing it. I mean, I think it's there are efforts to get it done. But it's, yeah long overdue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for folks who are curious about the book um, titled Vaccine Epidemic, Because Science Evolves, this is an ongoing area of exploration and learning. So I love that you guys do regular updates. But what's great about this, folks, is that it is thick, but it is an easy read. And the reason is, as um, Mary was mentioning earlier, is so all of these chapters, they all have like different people who wrote them. What I love is that this is broad and a little deep as well. So we have part one, the case for vaccination choice. Part two, breaking the silence of vaccine injury, personal narratives. I love that you devoted time to this. And then part three is the topics and debate. So I think it's a very readable book. If you pick it up and think, oh, my God, it's huge. Yes, but it's totally digestible. Thank you, March. That's, um, I appreciate your saying that. It, we, it's sort of like a kaleidoscope, and you're right that many of the chapters are very short. And many of the chapters, I think, for people interested in this topic are really like what they need to know. So, for instance, there's a chapter, you know, what should parents do? And that one sort of suggests the broad, you know, the broad range of views. Another chapter is a holistic health perspective. Another chapter is what to do about, you know, forced child removal, child protective services as it relates to vaccines. I think there's topics that are really important for people as well as kind of considering the big picture questions here. You know, informed consent, government coercion, profit motive. Those are big topics that definitely relate here. If they happen in the oil industry, there's no reason to think they don't happen in the pharmaceutical industry. Absolutely. We were very proud on the cover of our book. We have a quote from the former director of the National Institutes of Health um, who said, you know, there are unanswered questions about vaccine safety. No one should be threatened by the pursuit of this knowledge. We were really proud to get the former director of the National Institutes of Health, Bernadine Healy, to say, yes, you know, this is an important topic that people need to discuss and learn about. It is not a closed book. 
Absolutely. And and that's the thing when you talk to usually when I talk to vaccine scientists, they're very open. They're very curious. They're the ones who are desperately looking for funding because they are so curious to understand better what's going on. It's it's really when you talk to people whose only source of information is this massive media narrative that you run into people who just have a giant blind spot. I'm really hopeful that um, they will take a deep breath and say, hey, let's learn something today. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mary, I super appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing with your life. Thank you very much. Thank you, March. Likewise. I enjoyed reading about the ghost lords a little bit, and so good luck with that. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to finishing that up by November, I think, of this year. That's exciting. Yeah. So that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdell, and you've been listening to my interview with Mary Holland. I'd like to thank you for listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive social change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.